0: Welcome to episode 161, Kink, Laying the Clinical Groundwork from Fundamentals and Beyond, featuring Alyssa Helfer, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to learn about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, e. and today we're going to talk about a topic that I mean, goodness, everybody's excited to talk about or listen to. We're going to talk about kink. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Alyssa Helfer. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, in the states of California, Colorado, and Florida. And her jam is really sexology and particularly studying and discussing kink. Thank you so much for joining us, Alyssa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So why don't we start by you sharing how you came to start doing this particular very niche work?
1: Sure. Well, this work kind of found me. I definitely wasn't seeking um, a career in studying kink because I didn't really know what kink was when I was in college. And once I discovered it completely by accident by attending a conference that was being held at University of Minnesota, I learned about Kink, and I immediately fell in love. I thought it was the most interesting thing I had ever had ever seen, and the people at the conference just seemed so open and adventurous, and, yeah, I mean, that's really where my journey began. And so I guess prior to becoming a therapist, I had this idea that I wanted to know more about this community.
0: And you now, so you teach at Antioch University and you've also been running studies about kink. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that during mm-hmm. um, our conversation today. Why don't we start by you just even defining what kink is?
1: Yeah. So kink is interesting because there really doesn't seem to be one perfect definition. The way that I describe it is that it's this umbrella term that encompasses many different types of erotic play. Or erotic desires, and so something like b d s m is actually separate from kink in that it's it goes like under the umbrella, so Kink overall looks at what someone would call it like non conventional sexual desires, although I'm not crazy about that terminology. I can
0: imagine why, but why don't you <laughs> elaborate? Why are you not crazy about that terminology?
1: You know, I think that the like society at large imagines that. There aren't that many people that practice kink. And to be honest, I think that there are a lot of people that practice kink who don't even realize that what they're doing is considered kinky. And so being stuck in sort of this like Victorian era view of what sex is, right? Heterosexual and vanilla and monogamous, being stuck in that view to me, it just really doesn't encompass what the reality is, which is. People are participating in this, and if they're not participating in it, they often have desires or fantasies about it.
0: And kink in our culture is sometimes almost synonymous with shame. And I know I've seen that in therapy, that when this topic of sex and sexual desire comes up and then somebody's eyes go down to the ground and their posture changes mm-hmm. and then they're like, well, yeah. I kind of like it when and then they're looking at you like waiting for you to be like, oh, <gasps> um, yeah. tell me about like why you think it's really important that clinicians are having a conversation about kink and that we become better educated on the topic.
1: Gosh, I, I could talk about this particular part of it for hours but I will try to keep it concise. Um, Our duty as clinicians is to be there for our clients, to enhance their lives, help them in the ways that they need. And I think that when clinicians are showing up into a therapeutic space without being properly educated or perpetuating harmful myths and stereotypes, we're actually doing what is the opposite of kind of what we've all vowed to do. We're practicing unethically and we're causing harm to our clients. I one of the things that's most heartbreaking for me as a clinician is when someone comes to me and I'm the third, fourth, fifth therapist that they've seen because the others, you know, either shamed them, refused to work with them, conflated their kink play with abuse. The experiences that are happening that I not, not just that I've seen in my own practice, but they're reflected in the research. And so it's, it's really important for me to be on this journey to really promote clinical education around kink.
0: What are some of the most important research points about kink? Like, as you said earlier, it's one of those things that people think is much more underground, a really small minority participating or interested in. Can you kind of correct some of those myths?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, first we have to talk about numbers. So, there's a lot of data on how many people are participating in kink and pretty much all the research says something different. I think this is because it's sort of hard to define kink. And if we're being honest, I imagine there's a lot of kinky people out there who don't want to participate in research. So the research right now shows between somewhere between like 2 and 25% of the population is actually engaging in some sort of kink practice. But that up to 65% have at least one fantasy about it. And so we got to remember, how are we defining kink for some people? Um, you know, doing something like spanking is not considered kinky, but to some others it is. And so we have to look at like, well, what really is kink? So first and foremost, people are kinky. People are, people have alternative sexual practices. And then we need to look at, well, how often are they going to therapy? And uh, there's this kind of big study i want to say it was in twenty twelve and I can I, th- I think that I sent you the reference for this one where they looked at seven hundred and sixty six clinicians and they found that o- over seventy percent had worked with a kinky client, but that only i believe forty eight percent felt like they were confident and and competent to do that type of work and so these numbers and these numbers actually came up in my own research that I've just been doing um where there are more kinky people being seen than clinicians who are feeling competent working with that population. And that gap is something that we really, really need to fill.
0: When we get in the territory of not being kink informed, kink competent, if you will, what are the risks? I mean, there's a big file for us to open up here about the puritanical origins of how we view sex in the United States. Um, without doing the huge history lesson, can you kind of talk about where kink and shame like became kind of best friends? <laughs> so
1: when I teach this to my students, I and when I do like various lectures, I usually talk about the daddies of pathology, which are um, Freud and Richard von Kraft-Ebbing. The two of them really sort of mm, uncovered the... Not really uncovered, but they put the spotlight on kink as something pathological. So in the late 1800s, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, he went out and published Psychopathia Sexualis. And in that works, he talked about how kink is... um very problematic. It needs to be eliminated. Um, these people are degenerate. And if they don't eliminate their kink, they're going to pass it on to their children. And so he started to really introduce kink into the um, sort of like the medical lexicon. And Kraft Ebbing, interestingly, coined the term sadism and masochism. And Freud later, in I want to say it's 1906, That's when he released his work sort of confirming what Kraft-Ebbing was saying. And so the two of them, while they didn't necessarily work together, they had a lot of these really pathologizing views about what kink was. And that view has really stuck around up until especially when the first DSM was released in the early 1950s and further to now.
0: Can you speak more on how kink is pathologized in the main? lexicon and society that we exist in. And so for listeners, we're recording this interview in July of 2022. Um, And as Alyssa and I were discussing before recording, we just had Roe v. Wade overturned uh, within the last month. So sex and reproductive access are like at the front of people's minds. And it's just a really interesting time in history.
1: It absolutely is. And for those who participate in kink, they're not protected. There's no like legal protections for people that are kinky. And when we look at the media representation of kink, you know, if I asked just, you know, a person on the street, like, what's the first thing, of, thing you think about when you imagine someone who's kinky, they'll be like, oh, like a person head to toe leather. And, you know, there's this visual that we have that I think is based on the media. And, Something that's really interesting about the media is that it portrays kink in, I think, kind of one one or two ways. It's either this person is very sick and something's very wrong with them, right? Like They're like the murderer on SVU, or it's something like Fifty Shades. And I mean, we all know that that wasn't (laughs) accurate whatsoever, but it will present them in sort of this way of like, well, you can forgive kink because the person is so broken and like so hurt And both of those visuals are really pathologizing, right? It either means that kinky people are sick or that they're broken somehow.
0: For you having analyzed this research and looking at kink's place in society, why is it so important for clinicians to be more competent in discussing and working with
1: kink? Well, first and foremost, because they need to learn what the realities are. A lot of folks will conflate kink with pathology and uphold this assumption that kinky people somehow experience, you know, mental illness at higher rates or that they're inherently more traumatized or that their kink is a result of some sort of trauma where the research time and time again shows us that that is just simply not the case there are, you know, individuals who are kinky tend to be well adjusted, you know, when they're doing um they've done some research on personality traits and they tend to be less sensitive to rejection and lower on um, neuroticism. And so really there are a lot of positive outcomes that kinky people experience. But because of this deep rooted sort of sex negative culture we live in, it's almost like we have these blinders on where we're not looking at the reality that Kinky people who really engage in kink in this healthy, consensual way, they're not sick, deviant, twisted, mentally ill. That is just, it's just not true.
0: I think of anything you're going to say during this episode is like, I think that's the one that I'm like highlighting with like a line underneath it <laughs> of just this idea that kink doesn't necessarily and, and doesn't always point to some idea about pathology. And speaking for myself as a clinician, that's absolutely something I've heard people bring up before, which is like, well, I really like this thing. Is that because I experienced some abuse that I don't know about? Like, and it, and there's this fear where you know, you use the word deviant, where it's like, there must be something wrong with me that I like it when someone right. does this, or I enjoy this particular aspect. And these ideas of yes. of what I remember in my diagnosing class about the philias, you know, the, the paraphilias uh. of like, what what are the philias? So t- actually, I, yeah. <laughs> your reaction there, tell me how you <laughs> feel about
1: the philias. Uh, you know, I have very, very strong feelings about the philias. Now, In 2013, there was a major shift when it comes to the DSM. When the DSM-5 came out, it shifted the diagnosis from paraphilia to paraphilic disorder. And so to sort of clarify what that means is that now someone has to have not just a paraphilia, but a paraphilia plus personal distress that's not necessarily related to um, societal, you know, negativity or stigma. But how do I feel about it? I would be thrilled to see paraphilic disorder completely eliminated from the DSM. I think that putting it in there is, is incredibly pathologizing. I think that people shift and change and maybe what is distressing to someone at 19 years old who's never experienced kink in their lives, that might not be the case. A decade from then. And so to be sort of put in this category that there's something wrong is really harmful. Now, I, I heard this example, and I'm totally going to botch exactly how it was said, but it was from Dr. Anna Randall. I was listening to her um, speak, and she was talking about uh, crime. And it really like how there's sort of this conflation of criminal behavior, and like non-consensual behavior and kink. And what was really fascinating to me was this idea of like, well, why is it that if somebody goes and robs a bank, and they have a weapon with them, like no one in that space consented to being in an environment where there was a weapon, no one consented to that, but that's not in the DSM. But if somebody walks into a bank and flashes them, or gropes somebody, which is a a crime, right? Frauturism, which is essentially like groping, is a crime. But for some reason, because it's attached to sexuality, now it's diagnosable, now it's pathological. So that whole concept has always been really fascinating to me, like, well, then why is it that somebody who goes and commits another type of crime that's not related to sexuality? Why are they not? Why is that not in the DSM?
0: That's a really interesting point. And you, I think more than the average bear, so to speak, have spent time wondering about this. And can you just talk for a minute? Where did this come from? Because if we look back at history, if we look at Mesopotamia, if we look at ancient cultures, there's plenty of kink reflected. like this is a not this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new part of being human, but what happened that made it so like, oh, what? Up until fifty shades of gray, which which, you know, at least on some level, people started talking about it more. But up until then it was like, oh no. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So a lot has happened through history. And gosh, like when did things change? I think the Victorian era, I think the 1800s was a really, really big shift. And what's interesting about kink history is there was sort of this difference between the the history of sexual pain, so like masochism, for example, and sexual submission. So sexual pain, that has been around for a really long time. Sexual pain is even described in the Kama Sutra. And and interestingly, that's kind of the first time that the question of ethics starts to come up, right? The, The Kama Sutra states, and this is not a quote, but something like, um, people who engage in this need to be wanting to do it. That's where they kind of put the pain and pleasure together. And I think that, you know, when Kraft Ebbing released Psychopathia Sexualis, it was, it was not necessarily, I don't, I don't think just based on what I've read that the intent was to cause this massive stigmatization thing. He actually released it because he was saying, these people are not insane. They're just like sick. Something's wrong with them. Because prior to then, when someone was viewed as insane, there really wasn't a whole lot that you could do about it. It was kind of like, this is just w- what they are. Um, but I think moving it into the realm of pathology allowed it to have this opportunity to be quote unquote fixed. And so I think it was just the boom of psychiatry um, and conservative ideals. Um, I think that's sort of what happened. I mean, really until the American sexual revolution, sex was just, I mean, it was secret to, there was secrecy and there was some disgust and it needed to look a certain way. And the DSM, right? The diagnostic standards reflected that the DSM has always reflected the cultural standards, so to speak of the time.
0: And you and I could certainly kind of wax poetic about limitations within the DSM. And I think that's part of the reason that it continues to be revised. is Because we're looking at those frameworks going, well, I don't know about that. um, And hopefully moving toward a place of more accurate uh, representation of what's happening in our society. Um, But as you're talking about this, what's occurring to me is the intersectionality as well about how there's this... Um, <laughs> for lack of a better term, the deviant bucket. And in there we have uh kink, we have sadomasochism, so just you know within that umbrella, we have the queer folks, and then thank you, someone added, let's toss in uh, pedophilia. <laughs> we'll just throw that into that bucket. Sure. Can you speak to that for a minute in this complexity about how all of these ideas got lumped together that are very, very
1: different? You know, I I spent a little time trying to research in particular, diagnosis and researching the DSM, and I don't quite have a full grasp of like how we got to like who makes the decisions. I I read one article on that, but it didn't really feel sufficient enough for me to speak on the topic. But everything is lumped together and it and it's fascinating because fantasy fantasy and action and behavior are two entirely different things. A lot of people are not comfortable with the fantasies that they have, and for some, maybe their fantasies are th- is something that if they did do, it would be considered criminal. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do is is helping people kind of understand that their fantasies are not what's harmful. What's harmful is acting upon those fantasies. I have no idea how or why something like pedophilia was attached, although I don't even use that language. Um, that's also very in my mind very pathologizing i know that the folks who work with minor attracted individuals don't use that language um but that is very separate from kink that like i have to tell people this over and over again like somebody who is minor attracted that is not a kink it is not right kink has pillars there are pillars that that sort of build up what kink is and one of the big pillars of that is consent with other adults. So participating in anything with children is absolutely not what kinksters do. It is not part of the kink community. No one in the kink world condones it. And so I want to make sure that whoever's listening and whoever I teach forever separates those two things because they are absolutely not the same.
0: Thank you. And, th- and thank you for covering that and also even discussing the language because – it is important that we become aware of not only what's in the air around us in society about what words are being used, but then also like what's the clinical implication and what's actually accurate. I think I'm glad you bring up that point because there are like these big words and these big ideas that get thrown out and it's one of those specializations that if you if you're not familiar with it, it can be confounded and it would be too anyone's, I think, disservice to be linking these ideas. So thank you for kind of deconstructing just that. So when we're looking at kink, you already mentioned and tipped your hat to the Kama Sutra and this idea of consent. Can you give us some education about how consent fits into kink and really why it's the backbone of what this means?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think initially – if any clinician is working with somebody who is kink identified, or really anyone in general, consent is everything. Consent is the most important piece of really any sort of interaction in general, but especially in something like kink. And there are various consent frameworks that people tend to use within the kink world. And they started with SSC. So SSC was introduced in the early 1980s by somebody named David Stein, and and this was during the time where there was this big um, sort of advancements in the gay leather scene, and that's when SSC was developed to sort of say like, hey, folks, we're not doing anything bad. What we're doing, we're being as safe as possible. We are sane. We're not sick. There's not something wrong with us, and everything we're doing is consensual. And the, the SSC term, I, I believe that's what I was taught when I was in school. Although uh, I can't say that I was really taught a lot about kink. I think maybe it was covered a little bit one day. Um, But SSC has, I would say it's it's more utilized by the older generation of kinksters. And more so the newcomers are using something like Rack, which stands for Risk Aware Consensual Kink. Um, it was, uh, that term was one that Gary Switch came up with in the late 1990s. And that was mostly because of the argument of like, well, is kink really safe? Is anything really safe? And how do we define sanity? So risk-aware consensual kink or rack is kind of what I use more so with my clients and in my teaching, because I think that recognizing what the risks are is really, really important. Um, But I do want to note that when I say that kink is not necessarily safe, I also say that everything is not necessarily safe, right? Driving a car is not necessarily safe, but we take the risk knowing what could come up if we do engage with that.
0: Thank you for that um, kind of side note. So uh, you're saying SSC started back in the 1980s with the kink leather scene mm-hmm. in the queer community and then moving forward into the 1990s with, the, with RAC, which is risk-aware consensual
1: kink. What does SSC stand for? Oh, so SSC stands for safe, sane, and consensual. And there are more for the record. There's um, personal responsibility-informed consensual kink, which is prick. There is the three Cs or four Cs, which is caring, communication, consent, and caution. And that's actually more recent. That was released in 2014. Um, So there's kind of a number of these. And I think, you know, one of the things that I did when I was working on my dissertation is I did this sort of literature review looking at um, what do kinky people themselves say that they like? or what are good experiences with therapists versus what are bad experiences and i looked at a lot of qualitative research and one of the things that was sort of um that came up over and over was that kinky individuals really liked when their clinician knew about these concepts where they were able to say you know what consent framework do you adhere to or are you familiar with different consent frameworks how how can you utilize this to sort of Um, influence the type of player relationships that you have. So it's something that not only is important, but that kinky people themselves are saying that they actually like um, their clinicians to know in a therapeutic space.
0: So when we're looking at these frameworks, are these frameworks that are, I guess, applied clinically to conceptualize? Or is it more framework within the community to self identify? And I guess, set set boundaries around, as you said, safety and risk,
1: or both? Um, it's more so for the community themselves. Um, I think that... So something that I do as a clinician is I feel like I don't really practice from a vanilla lens, I practice more from a kink lens. And so to me, a kink lens means that ongoing consent is really important in my clinical work. So I personally do utilize these where I will say to my clients, you know, There's, if something hard is about to be talked about, I will say, you know, this, I may, I I have something I want to bring up that might be a little bit difficult to hear. Are you comfortable with me sharing? Like I'm consistently um, asking for consent within my sessions. And so that to me is sort of like the way that I implement that into my work. Um, But mostly these terms are founded by and utilized by the kink community themselves.
0: You've talked about quote-unquote kink therapy. Can you explain more about what that really is? And then on the day-to-day, what, what does a session look like for a quote-unquote kink therapist?
1: So people are often surprised to hear this. I get this question a lot. Um, and they're often surprised to hear that as as a kink therapist, so you know, someone who specializes in working with the kink community, I don't talk about kink every single day or every single session clients will come to me because they know hopefully through referrals or through you know seeing some of the work that I do that I'm not going to sit there and judge them or shame them so kink is just a piece of their identity and they don't want it to be some big thing they just want someone to understand that part of them and and their relationship so when I work with kinky couples for example um we don't always work on their dynamic. Sometimes we do. But for the most part, it's just that they want someone who understands that they participate in this type of life. And they don't want me to sit there and be like, what is it that you do? That's terrible, or have any sort of judgment towards them.
0: I appreciate your answer. And can definitely relate as someone who works almost exclusively with the queer community. Yes, that's what I know. That's my competence, and also varied. Sometimes very little of our session, if at all, does that ever come up. But it's just yeah. this idea of like this is, um, I guess, a deliberate not advertisement, but a deliberate uh, statement of inclusion. But I I appreciate you explaining that. Because that in and of itself, I could see how if someone misinterpreted the term kink therapy, then it becomes, oh, well, someone who participates in kink needs therapy.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the reality is, like, most people that come to me, it's because of, like, job stress or relationship problems. It's not – Now, some people do come specifically because they're sort of newcomers in the kink scene and they're trying to understand their identity or they're trying to understand – better ways to integrate into the community. So I do quite a bit of that work as well. But my whole goal is that anybody who ever decides to work with me does it because they know that I will create as much safety as I possibly can for that piece of their identity.
0: Can you speak more on that? I mean, as we're having this conversation, we just had this huge shockwave ruling about reproductive rights for folks with internal reproductive organs. And to me, it these ideas kind of crash into themselves about just sex in general, a person's right to sex, particularly people with internal reproductive organs about like, oh, you can't orgasm? Meh, sucks for you. You know, like the way that the medical establishment mm-hmm. often views sexuality. Can you speak a little bit about how you see these pieces fit to, fitting together and, and kind of where therapists come in to creating this um i guess whole person version that includes potentially sexual identity
1: yeah i mean i have really strong feelings about the way that sex is discussed in our educational systems i think it is almost entirely overlooked if and when it is discussed it is mostly about um maybe some physiological stuff they'll talk about protection like you know stis and we almost never hear about programs discussing pleasure programs talking about alternative identities um you know when i started teaching at antioch i was so floored with their openness in allowing me to talk you know to teach a class on on working with sex workers to teach a class on um indigenous sexualities where i where i got to bring in this excellent um guest speaker And so it's just like the educational system, because of the requirements for human sexuality training, it does not specifically state that we have to talk about alternative sexualities. And for many states, it doesn't talk about it; doesn't require sexuality training whatsoever. Um, So there's just there's so many realms that need to be assessed. And you know, you mentioning sort of like medical system and mental health systems at large. Um, one of the things that's happening right now, which is really exciting, is research is starting to be done um, trying to understand the kinky experience within the healthcare systems. That's, that's really exciting and also new. And that research is being done by TASHRA, which is the Alternative Sexuality Sexualities Health Research Alliance. And so more information should start coming out in the next few years. As we start to really understand the kinky experience as a whole um, and not just in the mental health system, although that is still vastly under researched.
0: Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Um, when we talk about kink, I think, you know, in addition to this idea about shame or what's okay or not okay, what comes up too is, I think, confusion about where abuse fits in or where that line is. Can you speak to that and kind of clarify that?
1: Yeah, I just, I like to start by just validating, like, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know anything about this, I get it. You, it, it. There hasn't been an opportunity. So I'm glad that you're taking that opportunity right now. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. If we're looking at the way that abuse exists, and obviously consent is sort of like the, the factor that differentiates healthy kink and abuse. But there's also a lot of other red flags that I think are really important to look out for when we are working with kinky clients. But but before we even do that, we need to be really careful about assumptions because a lot of folks who are in therapy struggle when their clinician makes an assumption about abuse when it is not happening. Um, So, I'm going to give a few examples. Uh, I would say for listeners, perhaps this is like your trigger warning because I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some abusive uh, uh, sort of behaviors. So, if we're looking at something like emotional abuse, or uh, let's start with physical. If we're looking at something like physical abuse, and you see a client who comes into your office and they have bruises around their wrists in a non kink setting, you know, if they're not kinky, that would be very, very concerning, right? You see bruises on someone or around their neck or anything bodily, any any sort of bodily markings would be really concerning. And we might, you know, kind of put up our antennas and be worried about that and, and talk about it with our clients. Now, as a kink therapist, I have clients who feel immense pride in the markings that are on their bodies from playing with their partners. And so, One of the things that I think is really important when someone comes into your office is recognizing, well, what kind of relational dynamic are they in, first and foremost? If they do not participate in kink, that's a lot more concerning than if they do. And if they do, I will usually inquire, but not in the way where I am assuming that it's abusive. I often will inquire more so kind of um, asking about, oh, so like, what did you get up to? And like, I'm noticing there's some bruising on your wrist. What's like, what was that from? Or like, maybe I won't use that exact language, but I'll find some way to sort of comfortably have that conversation with my clients. Um, and this is the same when it comes to language. So one of the things that's really, really important when it comes to kink play is recognizing what did someone consent to and when did they consent to it happening? So in some relationships or kink dynamics, there's what some would consider like verbally abusive language um now, maybe that's something that is allowed in the bedroom, but is it something that is starting to be said you know if, if in the bedroom they're welcome to say certain derogatory remarks or humiliating remarks, if that's all of a sudden starting to kind of spill out into everyday life, that's when I would get more concerned for my client um. I would also get concerned if there isn't an ability to end a relationship. So there can be 24-7 dynamics, but at the end of the day, there needs to be at least enough power to end relationships. So if somebody feels that they cannot get out, that's another thing that I would be very, very concerned about. And you had said earlier in the interview
0: that there's this myth about a correlation between kink, whether that be action or fantasy, and abuse or mental illness. Can you speak more to that? And like, what do we know about, if anything, about why some folks really like to be restrained and why some folks really like to say things that might be considered, quote unquote, humiliating to partners in the bedroom? Yeah. So this
1: conversation is, there's sort of like the three main questions, right? There's like, when does kink develop? Why does it develop and how? And there really isn't one correct answer because there's no single research study that can confirm like this is where kink comes from. So I can talk a little bit about what some of the theories are. Um, There's sort of these two schools of thought, the constructionist school of thought and the essentialist school of thought. And constructionist theories sort of posit that kink develops through external interests. So Like, environmentally, something pops up and then they see it and they're like, ooh, I kind of like this, and that's sort of where it comes from. And the sort of, like, opposite view of that is the essentialist view that claims that kink or interest in general come from the self. They're intrinsic parts of one's identity. And there's a few research studies that have really looked at this. Um, The first was in 2012, where the results were kind of even the results were about balanced where half of the per- around half said this is a part of who i am and then the other half were like oh no no it's environmental but what i've been noticing in my like i like love reading research so what i've been noticing as i've been continuing to read more recent research um the last two studies i've seen one that came out in 2021 and one that came out um i want to say this year in 2022 actually started to indicate that more of the individuals who were interviewed found that it was an intrinsic part of themselves. So both of those studies, and I will get you those um, references later, both of those studies showed that over 70% of the the populations observed or of the sample indicated that their kink interest came from really just like who they are, which sort of opens up the conversation about is kink more so – a sexual orientation or a neurotic orientation or just something that people leisurely do or some sort of hobby. I don't know that we're going to ever know the reality of that um, or why someone is interested in kink. So that's more so like where does it come from, right? Does it come internally or externally? But then there's the question of why. And one of the best like papers I've ever read was this sweeping review of 20 years worth of research. It was incredible. And um, what they looked at was essentially the last 20 years of theories about where Kink comes from. So they looked at like psychopathological theory and radical feminist theory and all these other theories. And then they looked at the subsequent research uh, assessing sort of like T- testing out if that's sort of true or not. And every single one of them, every one of them did not indicate that any single one of those theories were were um, where kink originates from. Like they're just, we just simply don't know. And I don't know that we will ever know or that we ever should know. Because to me, looking for where some like quote unquote, like where someone's kink comes from to me is the same as asking someone like why are you gay right like what do you mean like that's a part of my identity it's a part of who i am and so that's kind of how i see kink and i know that not everyone agrees with that but to me i think the valuable research is more so looking at how can we better serve this community than trying to understand why they feel the way that they do
0: what I'm thinking about, and I'm curious if I toss it out there, what your reaction is to it, um, and if our listeners are thinking anything similar, I was thinking about transactional analysis. So in this idea of the interplay between parent, adult, and child, and the different roles that we have, both within ourselves and our environment, but also as we relate with other people. And so often in adulthood, you know, when we're past what what we'll call age of consent, so often in adulthood, the part that's under nurtured is that child part of us that gets to play, that gets to have fantasy, that gets to exist with a different relationship with responsibility that can get in trouble in a different way than you can as an adult or as a parent, for example, if you're in a different role. But that it's an expression of potentially um, the graduating out of different kinds of fantasy from a certain age or maturity level into a different level of maturity and a part of our identity is is this kind of
1: play yeah i mean i think what you're talking about is particularly relevant to age players right we're looking at the community of individuals who play as um, different ages. So maybe somebody who regresses and considers themselves a little or a middle or a big, right? These are the kind of components of somebody who is into age play. Like, yeah, I I actually wrote an article on this, maybe like a year ago, um, and how misunderstood these communities are, because in so many ways, people just want to exist. They just want to what I hear from my clients all the time is they just want to get out of their heads. They want to give up some control for a second. Like, I, I think the way that society at large views this community is just, it's so broken and it's so devastating and heartbreaking when, like, the clientele and the population that I work with and the kink community in general, um, those who really adhere to consent and, and, you know, sort of the values and norms within that community. Like, it's so lovely and so beautiful. And it's just, it's like art, it's its self expression, yet it's just so highly pathologized. It's awful.
0: So when we have clients who are open enough to talk with us about some of their fantasies, and they're just tipping their dipping their toe in the water, so to speak. Um How do you introduce these ideas and helping a client sort through what is consent, what are boundaries, like what does this look like and how do I create a situation where I feel comfortable and honored, you know, in whatever that means to me and the person or people involved feel the same?
1: So I love working with sort of new kinksters. I think that's just a really fun time and in this beautiful exploration period. Um, What I typically do, well, I'm really open. So I feel like I practice sort of in an unusual way. Um, I consider myself like pretty radical therapist. So I'm pretty open about it. And I think that psychoeducation is the great, really kind of the greatest first step. So I will often, you know, encourage my clients to slow down, take a breath and start to get educated and understand the community more. So I'll give them some resources, maybe some books. Um, I will point them in the direction of the community itself. I'll encourage them to go to Munches, which is essentially like a social gathering for kinky people in a non-kinky setting. So like, you know, like bowling or uh, arcade, something like that. Um, So I really, really push for understanding and learning first. Um, and then I move into the what do you not want? A lot of people don't know what they want. They they sort of have some sort of inkling about like, uh, maybe this, maybe that. But I like to look at like, well, what do you know that you absolutely do not want to do or something that is not comfortable for you and um, what the community would consider a hard limit. So something that is an absolute no. So that's sort of where I start with them. Um, I, I don't necessarily have like a consent speech. I think that, you know, when, when someone is coming to therapy because they want to talk about their kink, they're usually pretty invested already in maintaining consensual play because they don't want to do something wrong. Um, I do see the opposite end of that though. Sometimes people who've come in, who are new, who, you know, maybe we're engaged with someone who I would consider like a predator in the community, where they didn't realize it was not consensual. And we sort of talk about that, that that does happen. Um, I think that people will see more clients who have experienced what I don't even consider. To me, kink and abuse cannot go together, because kink inherently means consensual. So if someone comes in, and they're like, I'm in a kinky relationship, Where there's abuse, I in my mind the way that I sort of navigate that is okay. Well, this is somebody who's with an abusive partner, and I would do what any other clinician would do when they're working with someone who's in a like you know DV relationship or something that's going on where it's not safe. Um, Like I just I differentiate them so significantly because I think that putting them together in any sort of way is is just harmful.
0: So for you, it's being very clear with yourself and with the clients about what is abuse what is kink and it sounds like you start with psycho ed for an early kinkster of like here's here's kind of your introduction to the community here's some ways to learn more about it and some resources and then you start you next go to here are the hard no's
1: yes like let's let's start to have the conversation about limits let's start to have conversations about boundaries and let's talk about you know what the standard sort of kink interaction can look like? You know, what does the negotiation piece look like? What kind of aftercare would you want? If are you concerned that you're going to be triggered by something that's happened in your past? And if so, then we'll likely want to work through that first, um, or be really conscious of that, and then also plan for what happens if you do get triggered in a kink scene so coming up with a trigger plan so there's sort of all these factors and i know that it's a lot and it's probably overwhelming just hearing me talk about it but um not, there are resources that exist that really talk about this like they are especially like the leather couch which i think is one of the best books on understanding kink from a clinical perspective and how clinicians can work with it like the resources do exist and so I think like if somebody's listening to this or they're feeling or or, and they're feeling sort of uncomfortable there there are plenty of ways to continue learning about this community
0: one of the things you said said really stood out to me which was You know, what if somebody's past experiences get triggered because of what they're engaging in or what they're thinking of engaging in? And it sounds to me what you're saying is part of where you see a clinician's potential role is to help identify those areas and create a a plan, really a health and safety plan of like, well, then here's what's going to happen when that happens. This is how you communicate it. These are the resources that you have available to you. Um, And that I I think if I could kind of sum up what you're saying is really kink is about being very deliberate in establishing a framework of consent and safety, defined safety for what that means for the people involved. And then also creating trap doors because circumstances change and situations and context change, but that it's not like this willy nilly kind of like, well, I'm going to use a rope tonight. (laughs) Like It's like, it's much more deliberate than
1: that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. If a client and I've had some clients do that where they'll come to me and they'll have had no experience with like bondage and they'll be like, I just saw this on a TV show and like, I really want to try it and I'm going to do it tonight with my partner. And I'm like, ah, like, no, Um, I'm really honest. Like, I, I believe in showing up in my authenticity in a therapy room. And so I will be like, yeah, sure you want to do that? Like, let's talk about it. Because um really and and this is also from Toshra's research like the most common kink injury comes from bondage it come you know nerve damage is very possible losing limbs is even possible like people have to be so careful when it comes to what they're engaging in and and honestly one of the things that I okay I should say I'm very biased like I think that kink is beautiful and wonderful and adventurous and like hell yeah, it's amazing. Um, But I think one thing that I've really taken from kink and the kink community is if we could apply these ideas, and and I do think this is also similar to the non-monogamous community. If we can apply these ideas of really open communication and putting extra attention into consent and extra attention into making sure we're safe in what we do, could you even imagine the type of relationships people would have? Like, The closeness, the intimacy, the connection, the the trust, the safety would be, I mean, it's, it's profound and it's beautiful. And relationship closeness, that increase in relationship closeness, that is something that comes up in the research when studying people who do sadomasochistic play. So it's like, I wish that we could take these lessons from working with this community and apply it to all of the clientele that we see.
0: You have mentioned some words that are very specific to this community. And obviously, there's only so much that you and I can cover in an hour. For the folks who are like, okay, what was this word that she just used? And how do I learn more about it? Like, wh- what is King 101? You, s- you mentioned leather couch. Like, where do we go to get that information?
1: Yeah, so okay. So here's my my standard of what I give people. Number one, absolutely uh, my friend and colleague Stephanie Garlic, she is incredible, brilliant. She wrote the Leather Couch, the second version. I think it's coming out like this month, very, very soon. That's a great resource. Um, in terms of people who want to understand or participate in kink research, Tasha is incredible, um, and they're the ones who are doing that new study. The actually, it's an international study, longitudinal. It's going to be incredible. Um, And that can be accessed at kinkhealth.org. Books that I'd give my clients, um, the new topping book and the new bottoming book are great resources. Those are written by um, Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy, also the ones who wrote The Ethical Slut. Um, There are some great people to follow on Instagram. So people who want to follow um, and take actual classes Put on by members of the community are going to want to go follow at kink hub, H U B U in boy, um, because kink hub will post sort of like repost community classes, which I absolutely recommend that therapists take. Um, but I do want to add that it's incredibly important to be mindful that you're a guest in. a a space that belongs to an erotically marginalized group. So really being mindful of that. Um, So kink hub is really good. And then gosh, like there's so many Instagram people to follow. I think it's probably best that I just give a list to you that maybe you could post for people. Um, Sure. We can definitely put that in the show. I think that might, that might be more helpful because I want to make sure that people get spelling right. But I think clinically you know, reading sexual outsiders by, um, Richard Sproat and, um, gosh, I, I forget the first name, but I know the last name is Hoff. I know it's Sproat and Hoff who wrote sexual outsiders. That's really good. And then organizations are like the affirmative couch. They put on courses, um, modern sex therapy institutes, pink therapy group out in the UK. They're fantastic. There's a lot of resources. I think if people, um, really take the time to search or just contact me and i will i will give resources i'm always open to sharing research and knowledge and all that so you just
0: gave some resources that, that clinicians can use to kind of prepare themselves and do the kink 101 if you will one of the things we haven't talked about yet when do we refer out how do we know that we're in over our heads? And you know, you already mentioned about the possibility of a client engaging in something that could potentially be traumatizing. We didn't even touch upon the idea of things that may be traumatizing to the clinician and this idea of informed consent. So how do you draw that line and, and, and kind of empower clinicians about the idea of consent
1: as well? So this is hard because kink is not something that everyone is comfortable talking about right off the bat. And I think that Because of this, it's really important that we get as much education as we can prior to even working with the kink population. So just taking a single 101 class, a single workshop should be enough to get sort of the, hopefully the discomfort out in that class. So I usually recommend that just because let's say you've been seeing someone you know, for a year or two years, and all of a sudden they bring up their kink. And if you're really uncomfortable, that could be so damaging. Or, in, you know, if you want to refer out at that point, to abandon the client then also can be so damaging. So I think sort of like if somebody comes to you and there's a hint that they might want to talk about practices that you may not be super comfortable with, um, you want to be really, really honest and upfront like there are certain kinky things that I am not a specialized, like I don't specialize in where if someone comes to me and they say, Hey, I, I really want to participate in blah, blah, blah. If I don't know what that is, or I'm not, you know, I don't feel that I have the expertise. I am not going to be, um, I'm not going to claim that I have some knowledge that I don't. And so I think sometimes that's a little bit difficult because we really only want to help people. It's what we do. But if something comes up that maybe like rubs up against your own trauma or makes you feel uncomfortable as a clinician definitely seek consultation um and i would say to refer out if it's early in the therapy if the client has taken you know years to get comfortable enough to share that at that point i would do heavy consultation and coursework and and learn because abandoning someone who has just shared about their kink will really perpetuate their own shame. And we don't, we don't want to do that in this work. One last quick question.
0: Um, when I talk with anybody who has a particular specialization, inevitably, they have a different assessment procedure. You know, if it's somebody who specializes in working with dementia, for example, it's like things that they're asking on intake, what are the things that you ask on intake that are really specific that it's like, hey, it would be really nice if we kept this in mind? Um, like, you know, I think therapists were like, okay, what's your gender orientation? Like, what's your sexual orientation? Da, da, da. And then we move on. Like, what are the questions you wish clinicians would
1: ask when it comes to this? So I think because most clients don't, I mean, some clients do talk about their kink in the beginning, but I would say that the way that I do my intakes is probably pretty standard. Um, the only difference for me is that if someone does bring up kink, I think that I inquire. Um, I, I, I inquire pretty specifically because when someone comes into a therapy session and they're like, "Oh, I'm in this DS relationship." So that what that means is I'm I'm in a dom sub relationship. Now, that could mean anything. I think that if clinicians skip over that and they don't inquire more, they're going to have no idea what they're working with. And so, if someone, I think for me, I, I don't I don't have in my paperwork like, "Are you kinky and how do you identify?" But if we start to talk about relationships, um, and I make it very, very, very clear that I'm, I'm open to working with various relationship structures. So I'll say like partner or partners, right? Because it, I work with a lot of non-monogamous folks. So I actually don't talk about their kink. And I'm also really careful about my notes because kinky people are discriminated against. So I'm really careful to not write about things that can be harmful for them. Um, nor do I include any of that in my paperwork. The only difference is for those folks who are explicitly kinky off the bat and are in my area in LA, sometimes we'll have conversations about um if I run into them, if I'm at a conference or, you know, kind of what that might look like and, and how I behave. Um, You know, you hear horror stories out there about, you know, Clinicians who run into their clients at like dungeons, and that is that's a no no. So I think um, just being really mindful of that is something that I do, but I would say that my standard intake is probably not not very different than anyone else's.
0: Thank you. Uh, but I think for clinicians who haven't worked with this community, I think there were just some important ideas that you just reviewed and this idea of partner or partners and inclusive language. Mm-hmm and appropriate, I guess, research and understanding of what certain terms are and to not just gloss over that and go, I, I don't know, and then, <laughs> and then not revisit it. But I think those are really important highlights. So thank you. Um, you already gave us some really wonderful resources. Alyssa, for folks that want to get in touch with you and understand more about your work, what's the best way to do that?
1: Sure. So, if someone wants to get in touch with me, I would have them go to my website, which is elevatedhealingcenter.com. And from there, I sort of link all of my different work, my therapy practice, the like consulting and supervision work that I do. Um, And so, I think that, or or so like workshops and lectures and, and opportunities like this, that is really the best place to reach me or they can follow me on Instagram at healing with Alyssa. Um, yeah, those are really the best ways. And I'm pretty, I'm, uh, pretty open to connecting. I love meeting people in this field and I love teaching and talking about kink. And so if people want to learn more, find me and we will have zoom coffee and we will
0: talk all about kink. Awesome. Thank you, Alyssa. This has been really illuminating you have already shared so much information with us and and with our listeners and I just appreciate people like you who are talking about the topics that need to be talked about. So thank you for joining us today and doing
1: that. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for being open to somebody like me coming on your show. Like this is this is what is going to change the therapeutic community and so I'm super super grateful. Thank you.